but it's not going to be next week, at least for now, that's not the plan, but in a couple of weeks' time, hopefully. Anyway, today, as we come to the end of this season, just before we go into the season of Lent, you know, and as I've been reflecting on what it is we are called to be and to do as a church, I really believe, you know, um, we've been called to make disciples. I think that's uh, not news to anybody, right? The Great Commission makes very clear that go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. You know, it's every Christian's mandate. Every church is called to that. But I don't know if you've ever asked the question, what is discipleship? What is discipleship? I think that this uh, reading from the um, epistle to the Corinthians, the second letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians uh, in verse 18, really gives us a clue because it says there, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit." that we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. At the very heart of it, being a disciple of Christ, really, I think it's, it's no, not news to anybody. It's to become like Jesus, to be transformed. That's why my title for the sermon today is Being Transformed. Now, I think, you know, that's part of the reason why the ancients uh, in, in uh, uh, the past developed what is now called the church calendar. If you know the church calendar, we go through different seasons, and most of the calendar really takes us through the life of Christ. But even uh, when it's not through the life of Christ in particular, it's through the life of the church. And um, we are on the cusp of um, the season of Lent, and uh, today's readings are meant to prepare us for it because it's uh, readings centered around the transfiguration, an event that took place uh, in, in, in Jesus' time when he was walking the earth. And both readings, both the Old Testament and then the New Testament, uh, sort of point towards it. You know, firstly, Moses' own encounter with God on the mount and receiving the law and coming down with his face shining. And then the interpretation from Paul about that event, but ultimately pointing to what is ultimate uh, uh, a turning point. You know, if you read Luke's Gospel, you realize that this uh, encounter changes things in terms of the narrative. That, you know, um, Jesus' ministry is building and building and building. And this is sort of the crescendo where, you know, the light suddenly turns on in the light eyes of the disciples. And then after this, you begin to see it, um, uh, Jesus turning his face towards the cross. But we pick it up now from verse 28. I want to uh, take time to expound the passage in the gospel reading. Uh, verse 28, it says, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Eight days after these sayings, what sayings? You know, uh, if you open your Bibles, you would be able to see. But I, I you know, point to the fact that he talked about his impending uh, um, path to the cross the death he was about to die. But he points out then in verse 23, and he said to all, all those who were gathered around him, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And, you know, he was 
obviously pointing to the cross. And this, I think we all know, is the call to discipleship. In fact, it's on the basis of this passage, uh, a, a famous pastor and theologian, a German who lived during the Second World War and ministered in that time, a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, wrote a famous book. Um, it's entitled Discipleship, although a lot of English translations are, are title it The Cost of Discipleship. And he challenged those who are reading when we think of discipleship, he said this, When Christ bids a man come, he bids him come and die. And the call to discipleship is a call to lay down our lives. You know, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily, and to follow him. And certainly this is what uh, we are called to. But as you reflect on what happened in the transfiguration, he went up to the mountain to pray, it says, with his big three, you know, Peter, James, and John. Ultimately, what we would think of as the core team of his CG. <laughs> you know, and so uh, we can identify in a sense. But you see that this is not the first time he's gone up to pray. It's not, certainly not the last time he's gone up to pray. Going up to the mountain to pray was not that the mountain had anything sacred about it, but he knew there was a necessity to withdraw from the crowds, from ministry, from the stress, stresses of life, to find and seek God in prayer. You know, and, and I, I would say to us all that that's something I hope in this year, as we move ahead, that we would discover that and we have an opportunity to come out. If I can make a short commercial break later on, I know we will announce the Ash Wednesday prayer, combined prayer meeting this coming Wednesday, the beginning of Lent. We're not going to do the imposition of ashes this year, but we want to come together with our brothers and sisters in the Chinese congregation to pray. So if you can, you know, set aside the time, come down this Wednesday at 8 p.m. to pray. We'll be gathering right here in the sanctuary. But prayer is so important. You know, this past week, I, I came across a, a Twitter post from Timothy Keller, the pastor who's now retired from New York City, and he said this, which really captured me. He said, failure to pray is not merely breaking some religious rule. You know, sometimes we think, oh, you don't pray, you're just being disobedient. But he points out, it is really a failure to treat God as God. Augustine says that prayer is a declaration of our dependence upon God. When we fail to pray, we basically are saying, you know, I'm not depending on God. I'm looking to myself. or I'm looking to some other means of help. That's why I find myself prayerless. You know, and, and it's an indictment on us, but I think it should also be a challenge to us. Okay, so Jesus goes up to the mountain to pray, and then it continues. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And this is what is uh, called the transfiguration, or you know, in more uh, uh, common parlance, the transformation uh, of Jesus. That you know, it, something happened in which he was changed. And not only was he changed, suddenly there appeared next to him Moses and Elijah. I often wondered, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? No photographs of Moses and Elijah as far as I know. But it gives me a clue, like maybe, you know, we won't have to worry if we know or not know a person in the resurrection state. You know, it becomes apparent who is who. But that's uh, an aside which I shouldn't go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> okay, but uh, when the two appeared 
uh, with Jesus, they spoke about his departure, i.e. his path to the cross. What Jesus was about to do to redeem us from our sins. And, um, you know, I, I remember, I can't find my record. I, unfortunately, the book which I, I purchased one of the many, many Christmas in Queenstowns ago uh, was a book entitled Word Art. Do you remember that? There was a little boy, Asher, from St. John, St. Margaret's Church, who uh, is on the spectrum, autism. And, um, you know, in all other ways, he struggles to uh, communicate. But somehow the Lord has given him a special anointing to draw biblical accounts and stories. And I remember flipping through the book and I came across the uh, encounter with um, uh, or his, his depiction of the transfiguration. And I was blown away with the theological depth with his understanding because he basically understood that Moses and Elijah represented the... I can't find the exact quote, that's why I can't quote it to you. I can't find the picture which I screenshotted and I lost the book because it got water damage and I threw it away. Anyway, the, the, the Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets. And basically pointing out that the Old Testament points us to Jesus. And that as you read the entire Word of God, it points us to the fact that uh, what Jesus came to do, and the salvation that He came to bring, and, and, you know, ultimately, that's the good news. That's the gospel. And that's what we find here in this encounter. But as we go on, we read in verse 32, Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said. And you know, this is a, 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 the part, the vignette I really like because <laughs> it shows us a little bit about Peter. You know, Peter is a, a beloved disciple, the apostle. But I like to identify with him because he's a person just like us. We see well in this account already, you know, his fatal flaw. Firstly, he was called to join Jesus in prayer. I mean, you're going to a prayer meeting with Jesus. And not just any old prayer meeting, a select uh, few, you know, only the three of them were there in prayer. And what does he do? He falls asleep. <laughs> you know, I don't know how many of you have fallen asleep in prayer. You know, I'm not ashamed to admit, I am ashamed to admit, I have time and time again, you know, sometimes in private prayer, sometimes even in corporate prayer, you know, the, the humanness of us falls through. And you read later on in Luke's Gospel, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, they fell asleep and prayed. You know, and Jesus said, couldn't you even watch with me for one hour? Right? And, and that reality is there. But the, 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 the prime Peter is right at the end, this little uh, uh, phrase, not knowing what he said. Right? Peter was the one who had foot in mouth disease. <laughs> you know, constantly impetuous and brash and saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. And what was so wrong about what he was saying? Well, first and foremost, he called him master, which was a term of respect. But he still didn't recognize who Jesus truly is. And he says, let's make three tents, which is obviously, you know, saying, you know, let's camp out here. And I think I, I don't blame Peter for that. 
I don't know if you've ever had a glorious encounter with Christ or a, a, a sublime spiritual experience, and you find yourself you know, wanting to dwell there. All of us do. And so his instinct, I think there's nothing wrong with it. But in a sense, the problem was this. He wanted to make three tents for the three of them. In his mind, Jesus was on par with Moses and with Elijah. Right, Three great men of God, three men of God who have heard God and are doing God's will and we certainly need to respect and, and learn from and uh, listen to. And that was his problem, which is why then we see as the uh, account goes on, God had to speak. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. God himself had to intervene. He had to reveal what Peter and probably the other two disciples also missed. That Jesus is not just a great teacher. He's not just an amazing man of God or a prophet. This is the Son of God. You know, it's in the same way the Old Testament reading was when God intervened and He spoke to the people of God. But He spoke to them through a mediated means. You know, the Ten Commandments and Moses brought it down. And Moses reflected God's glory. Here we see that glory emanated from Jesus Himself. It was not a reflection of God's glory. He was God Himself. And if there was any doubt, God spoke audibly such that the three of them heard, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Think about it. If you experience something like that, wouldn't your life be transformed? You know, and I, again, I talked about it uh, yesterday in the sermon and I said I put up... Uh, the next verse, and I forgot to do it again. But the last verse basically says that you know, they were stunned. And they kept silent about it and told no one about it at that time. They came off that mountain and you know, it, it was uh, um, um, an experience that robbed them. You know, they became speechless. But if you look into Scripture, we know that Peter's life was transformed. Not just by this. Obviously, there were lots of things that happened. Peter, after this experience, remained the brash... Um, you know, uh, um, impulsive person, foot in mouth disease, cowardly. Remember, uh, coming up to the night that Jesus was about to be betrayed, when they were in conversation and Jesus talked about the reality of what was about to happen, you know, Peter boldly proclaimed, Lord, I will follow you to the death. <laughs> and Jesus said, Peter, 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 you know, you are going to deny me three times even before the cock crows before the night is over, you're going to back down. And he did, right? We know the accounts well, that he was cowardly. And yet, this flawed individual became the leader of the apostles, didn't he? He became known as the first amongst equals. And you know, there is an insight, if you read into uh, Peter's letters, the second letter to Peter, he actually recounts this incident in his life. In 2 Peter 1 verses 16 through 18, it says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths 
when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. He's talking about his entire ministry as he's writing to the recipients of that letter. Right? That what we were telling you are not just clever ideas that we concocted ourselves. It is what we experienced, what we saw with our own eyes, was his point. And he goes on and he says, For when he received honour and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. The transfiguration was a life-altering experience. It was a turning point in the Gospel of Luke, but I believe it was a turning point in his life. Remember, you know, in other accounts, later on, Peter is the one who declares, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. (laughs) That Peter knew without a shadow of a doubt at that point of time who it was he was following and who it was he was a disciple of. And, you know, when you read uh, uh, this letter that Peter is writing, he's writing to a church that was in the midst of persecution. And he was warning them that, you, you know, you're going to face really tough times. But to stay on mission, to remember that which God has called us to, what we have been called to believe. And, you know, Peter was demonstrating it in his own life. And the reason he could keep the main thing the main thing was because of this encounter he had with God. This encounter on that Mount of Transfiguration. I've already begun speaking about the fact that, you know, I believe this year as a church, Church of the Good Shepherd, we are called uh, to the theme of trust and obey. Not in a a Sunday school sort of way, although it's a wonderful Sunday school (laughs) hymn that we sing, but the fact that, you know, as Christians, we are called in the midst of whatever else is going on around us to trust in God, trust in His Word, and to take Him at His Word and to obey what He calls us to do. In other words, really, ultimately, it's a call to radical discipleship, to really uh, uh, pursue discipleship. But what is discipleship? You know, that's something which we've talked about at nauseum in not only this church, but every church I've been a pastor of. <laughs> you know, is discipleship about teaching? Yes, teaching ultimately is important, but teaching alone is not discipleship. You can fill a person, their heads with knowledge, but you know, the Bible tells us knowledge puffs up. Ultimately, it's love that builds up. So teaching in and of itself isn't discipleship, although it's an important component of being a disciple, is to learn and to teach all that you know, Christ would have us do. Is it training? In other words, is it you know, developing the right habits, the spiritual disciplines, the, the, the way in which we are to live the life of a disciple? Yes, but not quite. Because that in and of itself is not enough. You know, we can always uh, focus on behaviors, but I think we know this well. You know, I, I, I learned it very young. As you know, I grew up in a, a pastor's home, son of a, a PK, right? They call, him, uh, they call us. And we become very good at behaving in the right way. In fact, some of you who knew me when my dad was here and we were living right on this spot where the vicarage used to be, <laughs> you would look and see and know, you know, I'm, I'm the perfect little pastor's kid. But what happens outside the public eye is something else entirely, I can tell you for sure. 
right? We, when we focus on behaviors, we can fall into the trap of hypocrisy because we act in a certain way. What is expected of us, but our hearts may be very far from Him. So, you know, training alone is not enough. As I started at the beginning, you know, the call to discipleship is actually ultimately a call to transformation. That's why I think this verse is so critical for us to understand and to imbibe and to, to you know, meditate on and allow to sink deep in that all we with unveiled face beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The same image, i.e. Jesus Christ. We are being transformed into becoming like Christ. Now, I've been preparing this sermon through the week, and uh, as is my custom. And on Friday, I often uh, set aside time to meet up with people. Uh, Friday afternoon, I met up with uh, some friends uh, in ministry, um, Kelvin and Ellerice, uh who are uh, uh, leading up a ministry called Awakened Generation, which uh, trains the church in worship and worship ministries, worship-related ministries. And at the end of our time, we were catching up. They told me about their trip, recent trip to the U.S. and what the Lord's been laying on their heart. Kelvin handed me this book, Discipleship Begins with Beholding, by a good friend of theirs, Samuel Whitfield, who is, uh, I think, one of the directors of uh, IHOP Kansas City, the International House of Prayer in Kansas City. You know, a, a tremendous ministry. And so I received the book, and I'm always grateful for getting books. Books are, uh, you know, you can't lose. You want to give me a gift? Uh, no, I'm not making a hint, okay? <laughs> but if you've ever been to my office upstairs or at home, you know I'm just, I've got books coming out of the ears. My wife is saying, please don't give him any more books. He's got more than enough already. <laughs> anyway, I got the book and I put it on my desk, you know, after I got home. Because I can't put it anywhere else, I get scolded. <laughs> and so I left it on my desk. And then uh, yesterday morning, I got up and I was praying and preparing and uh, putting together the PowerPoint because I preached this yesterday at the Saturday service. And I saw the book on the desk. And I can't help myself. I picked it up and I opened it up and I read it. And, you know, the very first chapter, Sam Whitfield says, the key to discipleship is this verse, 2 Corinthians 3.18. That all we with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the image from one degree of glory to another. And his point was this in his book. He says this, God did not become a man to improve your life. He came to make you like Him. And you know, wow, it's like as if I, I needed any... Uh, clarity that what God is speaking to us is from Him. You know, this book came like a, a I, I don't know, it was an eye-opener. It was, uh, I could feel chills running down my spine. It's like, you know, God is speaking to us as a church. It was reiterating the message that I had prepared and was prepared to share with you today. And if you look at the verses again, 17 and 18, it says this, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. He was comparing, you know, what had happened with the uh, uh, um, Israelites in the Old Testament. 
how there was a veil over their faces. And how, you know, their minds can sometimes, you, you know how it is, familiarity breeds contempt. You can handle holy things so much that sometimes it passes you by and you forget that this is sacred. This is God speaking to us. That you can put a veil over your eyes. You can come to church and you can be sitting there in the pew and, you know, nothing seems to get through. But he's saying that God is spirit. That we don't live by the letter, but by the spirit. The letter kills, the spirit brings life. Earlier in the passage, he says that. And so we need the spirit of the Lord to be in our midst. And in that, there is freedom. And he then says, all we with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed. That's what I said. For this comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. And I believe, you know, what God is saying to us, that if we are to be disciples, it's not about behaving like Jesus, it's about becoming like Him. And that all of us, we need a fresh encounter with God. Why is that so? Why is training and teaching not enough? I've shared this with you before, you know, Thomas Cramer who put together the uh, Book of Common Prayer, his anthropology He didn't write this, he didn't say this, but it was certainly what guided him in writing what he did in our our prayers. He says, or or he believed that what the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. So when you try and focus just on the mind or the will, you train, uh, teach, or you just train the habits, you miss the point. Because ultimately, we are driven and we're motivated by our hearts by the desires that are deep within. That's why I believe there's a need for us to behold Him. Because only in the encounter can we really uh, love. The book talks about how beholding beauty ultimately produces fascination. And it's fascination that transforms a person. I shared with the young people yesterday, (laughs) I have a guilty secret, and my kids all know this. They always laugh when they click on my Netflix account, right? You know, the account, we have a family account, so everyone has their own account, so that that way you don't mess up my uh, algorithm and then show me movies I'm not interested in watching. They they laugh because, yes, they're the requisite, you know, I'm I'm a guy, I love action movies. But then they will always find rom-coms, romantic comedies down there. You know, I I don't normally admit this, but I have in the past, you know, I I love watching rom-coms. Sometimes they're really stupid plots, you know, it's totally predictable. But there's something about that feel-good factor which gets to me. And if you stop and you think about the thrill of falling in love, how, you know, you, you, almost every rom-com is the same, right? They start out hating each other, there's some problem between the two of them. And then through all the things they go through, somehow they fall in love. And it's that love that ultimately transforms the characters changes them from the inside out. The motivations change. The way they want to go about doing things changes. You know, that transformation, that fascination, uh, beholding beauty produces that fascination which ultimately transforms us. And that's why I believe, and not just me, but, you know, that's what um, um, Sam Whitfield is pointing to, is that there needs to be a beholding of God. There needs to be an encounter with God. But it's not just a personal encounter. It must be personal, but it cannot remain personal. 
that we need the body of Christ uh, to experience it fully because he also talks about how beholding is corporate. Now, I'm saying this uh, mindful that some of you are joining us on the live stream, but I think, you know, it's important that when we gather as the people of God, it not be confined to just the virtual. Now, we are grateful that the Lord has given us technology that in the midst of this uh, pandemic, we've been able to continue to meet and gather and connect with one another through virtual means. But the reality is this. We are made of flesh and blood. We are embodied beings. And that the virtual space, you know, something is, uh, uh, doesn't transmit over the airwaves or internet or whatever, you know, I'm sorry, whatever it is that we connect. Just seeing a person on video and hearing their voice is not enough. It's, it's uh, what we have to do when we have no choice. I mean, you know this well. One of the things most people are looking forward to are the uh, relaxation of travel restrictions. Yeah, I know some of you can't wait to go away on holiday. <laughs> but we know in our midst, there are many of us who have family who live overseas. Many Singaporeans, uh, or people who live in Singapore, I should say, maybe they're not Singaporeans, their home is somewhere else. And you've seen on the news, for example, when the Malaysian VTLs started opening up, Families being reunited and, you know, yes, they had technology. Yes, they were able to connect over FaceTime or WhatsApp or Zoom or whatever else it is they use. But there's nothing like having flesh and blood connections. And I think it's the same for us. Now, I'm saying all that long time to say this because beholding is corporate. If we want to behold Christ, it needs to be done in, in, in the context of a body. Sam Whitfield says, God does not give all of Himself to any one person. There are aspects of who He is that you will only encounter through another person in the body. There are things the Lord will only speak to you through another person in the body. We cannot be complete in Jesus in and of ourselves. There are some aspects of discipleship that only come as we, are behold, as we behold Him together and then begin to live together in the image of what we have seen. That he is ultimately pointing out the fact that, you know, we need one another to connect. Let me end with this illustration, which I think you all know well. That, uh, the, the, you know, if you have a fire and you want to keep the fires going, you make sure that all the coal stays together, whether it's in the context of a barbecue or a campfire or whatever experience you have. I know I've been camping uh, when we were living in North America, and one of the joys we had was, you know, to build a campfire. And at the end, you're supposed to put the fire out because you cannot leave an untended fire. Now, obviously, we always think of pouring water, but I was taught the way to put the fire out without, if you don't have ready access to water is to take the pieces of the burning coals and spread them up. So that when they're not together, the combined heat which keeps the fire going eventually dies out. The fuel will burn itself out. And so it is with us as Christians. In terms of our discipleship, in terms of our pursuit of Christ, in terms of becoming like Him, we need one another. We need each other. 
to encounter him. Because when Jesus encounters you, or he encounters me, oftentimes what we discover of him is one aspect of his character. It stands to reason, because, you know, God is huge. He's immense. And so often he gives parts of the picture to different ones of us. And it's as we come together and as we share what God is saying to us as a church, you know, then we can begin to understand the big picture of what God's calling us to. So that's my appeal and my uh, urgent call, you know, to come back. <laughs> those of you who can. I know those who have to remain away for uh, uh, health reasons and the like, you know, by all means, stay there. Don't feel guilty about it. But there are many who still stay away because it's more convenient just to click on YouTube and to watch the service. Easier to gather as cell groups over Zoom because you don't have to tra- you know, change and travel and go meet someone. But if we really want to encounter God, it needs to be done together. That's my first appeal. My second appeal is this. As with Peter, many of us you know, have had an encounter with God. Life-transforming. I have. I'm sure you have as well. But it's important that we not just live off that one encounter. Because there's so much more of God that we need. Yes, that encounter in the end of our life we will turn back and look to as our turning point. But God wants to continue to encounter us. And I hope and pray that in this year of 2022, there'll be opportunities for us to do that. Especially here, corporately, in Church of the Good Shepherd. We want to create the space for that in our prayer meetings, in our worship services, you know, in the times of ministry. You know, an opportunity for us to encounter Christ. But I particularly want to speak to those of us who are listening to this, who may be here, or maybe you're watching online. You have yet to encounter Christ. You have yet to behold Him. You've heard about Him. A lot of what you've heard makes a lot of sense. You, you like what you see about Christianity and how Christians live, and that's been attractive to you. But our God is a personal God. Our God is a God who loves you very much. And He wants to have a personal relationship with you. And I want to make that invitation to you today. Whether you're joining us through the live stream or you're here in our midst. I don't care if you've been coming to church all your life or you've just stumbled in or you know you've been coming you know I'm talking about you that's the Holy Spirit that's speaking to you He's calling to you and He's saying come come home to me come and meet me come and behold me in all my glory that you may be transformed into His image from one degree of glory to another You know, I'm going to lead, or I'm going to ask them to lead in this song, and I know we're not supposed to sing, but I want you to join in your hearts as you look at these words. I discovered yesterday when I asked the uh, younger service to play this song, none of them knew this song. You know, I really felt very old. (laughs) But it's To Keep Your Lovely Face, written by Graham Kendrick. Very simple tune, but very powerful words. It's To Keep Your Lovely Face Ever Before My Eyes. This is my prayer. This is my strong desire. 
that in my secret heart no other love competes, no rival throne survives, and I serve only you. You know, this call to encounter is not just for those for the first time, it's also for those for whom maybe other loves have started to creep in. And you need to return to your first. And at times, the voices we hear from the world, the values that surround us have crept in. The weeds have come up around our hearts. And Lord, this morning we want to do a a clearing of those weeds. Lord, we ask for a fresh encounter with you. Lord, we want to see Jesus afresh. We want to be a people wholly dedicated to you, being transformed by you. Lord, we will not settle for just behaving like Jesus. We want to become like Jesus. Whatever it takes. Help us, Lord, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow you. Thank you, Lord. Do this deep work in us, we ask, and we pray. Thank you, Lord. Jesus' name, and all God's people say, Amen.